Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a really great show for you, really interesting. We've got Norman Bacall, and he's a retired attorney. He's the founder of the Toronto Law Office, and I hope I say this right, Heenan Blakey. While building and leading this firm, he also became a wildly sought expert in tax law for the entertainment business. He's represented studios such as Warner Brothers and MGM and served on the board of directors for Lionsgate, where they were producing the Hunger Games film franchise. Uh, When he retired from the practice in 2015, he took up writing. And I wish we could all take up writing the way that Norman did. He's written four books. Uh, breakdown is the one that is that's that's the story to tell right there, as well as uh, Amazon best-selling fiction novel Adele's Fall, and he's got another novel coming out, Abdallah, and he is actively mentors young professionals, and he's a frequent keynote speaker at university firm retreats and conferences. He actually holds a third-degree black belt in in karate and is an avid golfer. He resides in Toronto with his wife, Sharon. But he's got a book that really excites me, Take Charge, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. Norman, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, Lee, it's really my pleasure to be here. Nice to talk to you. Well, it's interesting because I've written a book, too, but I have to tell you, my first, book, my first book didn't go over the way yours did. That's a story in itself. Share that with our listeners. Well, uh, my, the one thing I, I could have guaranteed to you as little as six years ago was that I was never going to write a book. Like, not at all. I, in fact, I still remember uh, being in Paris on an anniversary trip with my wife in my mid-40s and reading The English Patient. And I was about midway through the book and I, and I turned to her and I said, I, there's no way I'm ever writing a book because the, the prose in that book was just so magnificent. And I knew what I was good at. I didn't think I'd ever be, ever be good enough uh, to be an author. But uh, after I retired from leadership in my firm, which I ran for about 25 years, I, uh, in, in the final year, I hadn't left the firm. I just retired from leadership. And 14 months later, the firm collapsed. So I was in a situation where what I had spent pretty much my entire adult life building was, was gone. Uh, so aside from the economic loss, which was considerable, uh, there was a huge emotional loss uh, that I was enduring and wasn't wasn't even prepared to recognize at the time. And it was my wife who suggested that in order to process my feelings at, at suffering this kind of loss, I should just just start writing uh, to process feelings. And so I, I began by uh, writing uh, sort of the final scene of the of the of the firm of my business life to that point in time. Uh, because I insisted on being the captain going down with the ship. And uh, on, on our last night of operation, I think it was Valentine's Day of 2014, I was the last one in the office. It was it was bare. It was uh, an office 
that was pretty much a tomb at, at that point in time. A tomb might be a good description uh, because it was it was devoid of any life. They were uh, re- you know, re- recycling boxes on the floor. All the furniture was basically gone. Uh, all the people were gone and the vestiges of 25 years, it was empty. Uh, all that was left was a beautiful view over Lake Ontario uh, at twilight. And that was, it was that feeling, that mood, that moment that I decided I was going to capture to start. And when I finished writing that scene, I asked myself, what next? And what came next was a decision that I was going to try and capture every memory I had for, uh, for, for my entire career. And what, what started as uh, something to process my feeling turned into a habit. I began writing, uh, I had to find another job for, for the next two years. And so I began writing at night, uh, two, three, four hours. I, I kind of set a minimum. If, when I wrote six pages, I could go to bed. And that turned into a habit. And that habit turned into 750 handwritten pages because my typing wasn't good enough yet at that point in time. And uh, when I finally uh, developed an abscess on my writing finger, uh, I knew it was time. I I, I probably written enough. And uh, we went away on Christmas vacation, came back in January, and I decided I'd start typing it. And slowly but surely, what began as a memoir really for my children, so they there, there would be some memory left of what I'd done, uh, became the, the base for a book. And uh, although little did I know how little I knew about writing at that point in time. So that, uh, I, 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 I called an agent who was a friend of mine who said as a favor, he'd take me on as a client. I was fairly well known in the legal industry. And I think he knew that there might be some book sales resulting from that. And a couple of years later, what came out of it was Breakdown, which went on to be a Canadian bestseller. Uh, how many copies exactly it sold, I'm not sure, not that it matters, but it's been uh, read by lawyers across the country. And it's really uh, a three-part book on, uh, part of it was uh, a case study on how you go from being a, a law school student to a partner in a firm, uh, Book two was really my theories of leadership developed over 25 years, and that's really how to build an organization and what's critical to it. And then part three are, uh, interestingly enough, it was a a case of doing an assessment of how an organization can come apart at at the seams, but written by an insider who's actually going through it. So you get to experience not only the factual collapse, but the emotional aspect of a collapse. And as I've been talking about that book for the last, because I lecture on university campuses, I lecture to firms across the country, um, the whole notion of what we go through when we suffer that kind of loss, whether it's whether it's economic, uh, whether it's illness, whether it's uh, death in the family, and I don't mean to liken any of these things, but uh, when you go through extraordinary loss and the strain attached to it, uh, it alters you. 
Well, it does. And the grieving process is the same process, whether you're, you're grieving for the, uh, the loss of a family member, or I've been grieving for the loss of normal for the last year. So it's the same process. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, but being able to isolate that and deal with it and move on with my life, uh, became, uh, it, it became an interesting sort of self case study. And in some respects, I guess we, you know, the entire world has been going through that and is now hopefully coming out the other end. But it was, it was interesting to actually be able to focus on it and try and capture it in that first book. And I, and I think that's what, uh, that's what people, uh, tie into It's It's interesting because I had a mentoring session. I do a lot of mentoring, uh, the other day with a coach and, uh, and at the end, she said she had read breakdown and she said, when I got to the last page, she, she, she said, I was crying. I said, and, and my response was that was the nicest as an author, that was the nicest thing you could possibly have said to me. Because I remember when I wrote that last page, I said to myself, uh, because the last, the, the last four words of the book were the original working title. And it was, and then I cried. Mm-hmm. So uh, largely because it was about holding things together, holding things together, getting through it, getting through it. And then finally, when you get to the other side, you can finally let down. And, but I said to myself, as an author, I felt when I wrote those words that if the reader isn't crying, when they get this line, I failed as an author. So, well, you know, you didn't then. So, but that's just a great, you know, for a first book to have that kind of impact. And I think I read somewhere that, you know, it was, it climbed to the Globe and Mail bestseller list so quickly. Um, it, It was just amazing. And that was, it sounds like that was the first of four. And it's that, your your fourth book that really intrigues me because, you know, the world is opening up now and we're all coming out and we're, and I've always believed that strategy is important. And we, I think we've just been laying low for so long that we don't necessarily have a strategy in place. And I know that you're a big believer is that if you if you want to see great success, you got to have a strategy. <laughs> you, you, you've nailed it. And, and that's why I sat down after four years lecturing uh, on university campuses uh, about breakdown. It became clear to and, and the theme of my speech uh, on campuses was always the same, which is I used to be you. How did I get to be me? And. I, I concluded it was time to do a give back and not just to the legal industry, but to uh, generally to particularly uh, to young people uh, going through university, not sure what direction they're going in or, or to people who are between jobs uh, or to people who just aren't sure what the next step is in their career. And I figured, you know what, I'm going to write it all down. Uh, and and try to boil it down, not just based on my own experience, because I thought after breakdown, people would be a little bit bored with my story. But uh, I went out and I interviewed uh, professionals, uh, entrepreneurs, business people from all walks of life who started some, you know, one of them started with just the shirt on his back when he arrived in Canada at the age of 16 from Jamaica. And he had literally nothing. And he's gone on to become one of 
uh, Canada's leading African-American entrepreneurs and he's leading an entire project on uh, increasing diversity in Canadian boardrooms. He's just a remarkable man. But uh, I've gone out and I've interviewed men and women from across North America who have made it or are in the process of making it in order to distill out what are the, what are the common factors uh, that people who have been successful have relied upon and and more important than that how do we make those lessons accessible and that's what take charge is all about well i think a lot of times you know we're just sitting back waiting for life to happen to us and i've learned the hard way that's not, that it's not going to happen that you know i have to put some energy out there and i have to many times you got to be proactive um and take the lead. So I think that take charge, just that the title really draws me in. Uh, I, I certainly hope so. But but it's it's very much at its core uh, a book about how to take initiative, whether it's a question of improving the skills you need uh, to add to your quiver of arrows to allow you to succeed or the way you think, the way you behave, how you communicate with people. Uh, There there are a a number and and or the steps you need to take to get from point A, which is where you are today, to point B, which I like to say is where you imagine yourself being a year from now. And I try not to to set it out too far, although I I always think you should have a a long-term goal in mind in terms of where you'd like your career to be. But if you can break it down into manageable chunks and then uh, then d- decide how to take that strategy and, and take it into, into little step-by-step actions, uh, you will begin to notice the changes in you. Well, it's interesting because, I mean, what you're talking about is kind of the basics, the basic things that, that we do, step-by-step action. But that can be really hard. Sometimes I think we we get our eyes on the prize and we want to go for it. Well, it's interesting. I had a a session, uh, and I mentioned it before, um, with with a a coach. And I said, and and I'll ask your listeners to do this, uh, which is just sit back, close your eyes, cross your arms, and relax and breathe for about five seconds and just enjoy the moment. All right. And now what I'd like you to do is stop doing that. All I want you to do is cross your arms in the other direction. And as you can feel, it's very uncomfortable. It's not the way you cross your arms. It's not how you do it. And, And the point I like to try and drive home with that is that if something as simple as changing the way you cross your arms feels that uncomfortable. And as you do it, all you're thinking is, I really want to cross my arms the other way. It's an indication of how our brains are naturally wired to resist change. So as much as we say, I, you know, I'd like to do this, I'd like to set this goal, I'd like to be a better person, I'd like to be a better speaker, there's a little part of your brain that is hardwired to resist anything that, that involves change. And until you understand that, and understand that you need to get over that that little bit of discomfort that keeps you from taking that initiative, you can't succeed. But well, the moment you understand you. it, 
you have a shot. Let me ask you a question because I mean, when you were talking, I think, well, yeah, that's fear. You know, it's fear of failure. That's what holds a lot of my clients back when they're talking about, well, I want to do this and I want to do this. And I'm like, well, you've got the qualifications. You've got the experience from what you've told me. And yeah, 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 I do. So why don't you do it? And the answer is always, I don't know. And what I hear is fear of failure. And some will come out and simply say it, you know, I'd be embarrassed if it didn't work out. Uh, some of the studies I've read suggest uh, that it's a bigger issue with women than with men uh, in terms of uh, not wanting to take on a new role unless they are completely convinced they will succeed at it. Uh, why that is, I'm not sure. Uh, whereas more men are prepared to bluff their way into a, into, into a new position that they're not sure they can handle. But putting all that aside, uh, I think we all face that little voice in the back of our heads, and particularly those of us who have succeeded to a point in our lives uh, where there's the, the voice is saying, well, listen, if I try this and I fail, you know, I'm going to be embarrassed. I'm going to be embarrassed in front of myself. I'm going to be embarrassed in front of my peers. And and if I just don't, you know, or, or, or a potential client. And so, but if I back away, that's safer. And that's, well, what, that's in the end, that's what's holding you back. The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know, for sure. <laughs> well put. And usually that's, it's not even a devil. It's just, a, you know, a skill set that you don't know whether you can master. And... And, and I like to say, and now I go, particularly now as I lecture on campuses, I go out and tell them, you know, when I started lecturing and said, I, you know, I used to be you, you, you'd probably look at me and you'd say, okay, here's a guy who's talking about what he did 35 years ago. What could that possibly have to do with my life? The world is so much different today when you add in social media and everything else and all the other you know, new technologies like this guy's talking from a different world. And my answer to them today is, well, listen, it was only five years ago that I had never written a book. And if you think I had the slightest clue what I was doing when I began writing my first novel, I think if I'd known how much, how little I knew about writing a novel when I started, maybe I wouldn't have started. But once, once it was underway, I said, okay, you know, there are 10 skills I've got to learn in order to succeed at this. And one by one, I'm going to learn them. And, you know, in my and my my uh, agent said to me, listen, if you want any of your books to sell, you need a social media presence. And I was petrified of that. Oh, my goodness. You know, being in my 60s and uh, thinking about going out on LinkedIn and Facebook, which I'd never bothered with. And the one thing I discovered is uh, is the same thing that all all of you listeners uh, know, know deep in your heart. And that is if you apply yourself and want to learn you can do it. And I did it. And that's what I tell all my students. I said, if I could do it a second time, you could do it a first time. Well, I think that, and that's what a lot of people need to hear is that you can do it. You, you can do it, particularly if you've got the drive and the motivation to do it. But I think a lot of times we just want to kind of sit around and wait and think that it's going to come to us. You know, if it's, if it's right, it'll come. Well, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it won't. 
And that's what I, I, you know, I liked about your, the book is it really started at the very beginning. How do you start? How do you get, you know, how do you get clients and how do you grow them? That's right. I'm, I'm fond of saying that, uh, you know, to grow a client base, you only need one client. I mean, it's, it, you, you can start with as little as that and go from there. It's not, how am I going to get 25 clients, uh, you know, when I, when I only have one is probably the wrong question to ask. But the better question is, how do I use my, my one client to get more work from that client? And how do, you, how do I use that client to be part of my web network to attract uh, other potential clients uh, because that client is going to speak so well of me? Well, do you think that involves finding the clients that are right for you? It's it, not only the clients that are right for you, uh, but the, the job that's right for you, the workplace that's right for you. Uh, it, it's interesting in, in some of the things that I've read, it, it's fairly clear that if you're at a workplace that doesn't suit your personality, it's going to be very hard to succeed. So if, for, for example, if you're, uh, if, if you're the type of person who's fairly hard-headed and loves to argue, and you're working at a place where everyone is accommodating, you're going to be sticking out like a sore thumb. You're going to be the person nobody wants to have lunch with, frankly. Whereas if you're at a workplace where people love to argue and fight it out, you're going to feel quite comfortable. Like you're at the right place. You're working with the right people. You have a much better chance of succeeding. So. Uh, so it's not just a client issue, it's a, are you suited to the workplace that you're at? Well, I, that's a very good point. And, and I think, you know, the basic structure of any good relationship starts with communication. And some people are great communicators because they're good listeners. And I know you talk about listening in, your, in the book. I, I do. It's funny because I just posted on that on, on uh, LinkedIn the other day, and it's a, it's still a problem I fight with because uh, the legal profession is probably the worst of all where it, it's drilled into us that in order to succeed, for example, as a lawyer, you need to be a great communicator. It's all about your oratorial skills. It's how convincing you are. Uh, whereas the reality is uh, most people, particularly these days, are not going to be convinced by by logic. In fact, they're going to be convinced much more uh, by emotional uh, by emotional ties, by your ability to listen to them, to understand where they're coming from, to and and it's only by understanding. Uh, and it could be a client, it could be a colleague, it could be anyone else, but it's only by listening to them and not just to the words, but trying to get into their heads and see where they're coming from. If you can do that by actively listening to them, you stand a far better chance of connecting with them. Well, have you ever seen somebody when you're talking to them, you can tell they are, they're formulating in their head what they're going to say back to you. And, and they're not listening. There are, I can tell because I can see the wheels turning in their head. Okay. I've got, you know, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this, I'm going to say this. How, and usually when I see that, I shut down. I'm like, okay, why don't I just listen to what they have to say and then pick it up? Yeah, I developed, uh, 
an interesting tactic for dealing with meetings because imagine managing a meeting of 50 lawyers, all of them feeling that way, that what they had to do, say was way more important than what anybody else in the room had to say. And if I, if I was coming into that meeting with an agenda or something that I wanted to accomplish, what I would do was I would let the meeting run and make sure everyone had a chance to speak to the issue before, before I put out what I wanted to do. And largely what I found is once they had emptied their cups, uh, they were, I was able to fill them back up with a new idea. So for those people who are sitting there and you can tell when, when they're there, you might as well just close your own mouth because they, they need to speak next. And I, I found that, uh, in fact, rather than shutting down, if I let them, if I let them go and listen, listen carefully to what they say and affirm uh, their, their thoughts, then I can see, I wait for the head to nod, and then I say, okay, that's all great. But I think where we're heading is towards here. And finally, they've got nothing left to say because they've said it all. And now they're prepared to listen. Well, you make a really good point, and that is everybody wants to be heard. And everybody wants to know that, that you heard them. And people can people appreciate when somebody really does listening. I think listening is one of the most important skills in communication. It's staying present, staying in the moment, staying in that conversation, not jumping back to the conversation you had with them a week before. And it, for some of us, we tend to do that. So we're, we've got a couple of minutes before we take a break. So what, any other thoughts about communication that you'd like to share? I think if you start from the, from the proposition that communication is, isn't about you, it's about the other person, your starting point is so far advanced from where most of us are. I mean, we, we, tend to, we tend to tense up going into discussion or debate uh, or a situation where we don't know what the outcome is going to be because we, we feel it's about us. That's our natural tendency. And if you can just change that mindset just a little bit and say, okay, it's not, it's not about me. It's got to start out about being about you. And you have to see how much I'm prepared to listen to you. And when I, when I, I'm able to convey that to you, how much I care about what you have to say, then I am in a much better position to, to sort of resume what, you know, make a conclusion based on what you've said and just turn it slightly so that you'll listen to what I have to say. You know, and I have found I love a good story. If, and I find that I can really draw people in if I communicate in the way that it, that I am telling a story and so that's just something when I when I have a a point of view that I want to share, I always think, okay, what's the story behind it? Because there's always a story behind a point of view. And I find that maybe because I get drawn in, but I think everybody gets drawn in to a really good story. I mean, we watch them on TV, we read them, we read books. It's It certainly is a way to draw people in. So we're, we're going to go to break, but stay with us, because when we come back, we have got lots more to talk about. This is all in your head, and in the book, he talks about it's all between your ears. We'll be back after these messages. 
Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lippman on toginet.com. Yesterday I called my computer helpline because I felt an overwhelming need to be made to feel ignorant by someone much younger than me. Hey, I know a few things about computers. The term reboot actually originates from the Middle Ages when horses who stopped mid-stride required a reboot to the hoof to start again. A timinagi is another name for a device that saves you time and labor, such as a computer. Because my computer issue couldn't be resolved over the phone, they sent a bobby dazzler over to have a look. The technician informed me that it appeared my computer had been shaken or dropped, or as the Scottish say, missed guggled. Whoops. Did I mention I have a bit of a temper when things aren't working right? It's words you never heard. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. Well, thanks for staying with us. We, we Right before break, we were talking about communicating, and, and storytelling is an important part of that. Right, Norm? Absolutely. It's, uh, I think it's, it's kind of essential, and it's something I, that, that, I, that I teach as well. I, I find that most audiences uh, can't really pick up a, a message that they will remember, if you're just giving them facts, facts and details, whereas if you can, if you can couch it in a story, uh, it's often a story they'll never forget. And I, and, and the, the greatest lesson I had was based on an experiment uh, that I did. Uh, I used to give the annual holiday speech at my firm, uh, largely because when I opened it in Toronto, we were just, uh, we were, I think, eight people in total. And uh, and I was uh, I, I was the one who would open the office, so I took it on myself, and then it just became an annual tradition, and it became one that everyone used to make fun of me about. But uh, there was there was one year once we had grown fairly large where I decided to tell uh, a story because my speeches were all about the values that we had because I, I was a firm believer that values uh, are are critical to building an organization. Uh, and 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 in fact need to be part of uh, part of your strategy, and they were certainly part of mine. And my uh, my strategy, my strategy, strategic value was that people come first. That it was important to do excellent work, but that our people came first. So I decided to tell the story about how I went blueberry picking with my grandfather uh, in the country every summer. 
and I could still remember the, the feel and the smell, the smells of the blueberry and the touch and, and, and the summer heat and humidity. And I conveyed not just the action of, of picking blueberries with my grandfather, but, uh, but the love I felt for that moment and the fact that I could recall that story 45 years later when I told it. Uh, it became famously known in the, in the firm as the blueberry speech, uh, to the point where even people who weren't at the room in the time, because they weren't yet at the firm, knew about that speech. And, and it proved to be probably one of the better experiments of my life, because it showed to me the value of connecting a story to people's emotions to our core values. And if our core values were about people and emotion and caring about each other, then telling a childhood story designed to get everyone in my audience thinking about their childhood moment story, connected us in an emotional way from that point forward uh, that was extraordinary. That's a great story. <laughs> that really is. So, you know, you started that from the from the ground up and you learned a lot in the process. And I think you share that in your book, Take Charge. What do you think is really, you know, the meat of the book? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, because it's a book that you, you can really divide into three parts. One is the, what are the tactics uh, that, you need, that you need to learn and the skills you need to improve upon in order to get better? That's part one. Part two is sort of what are the psychological issues that are that are holding you back? And we talked about fear before, fear fear of failure and fear of risk taking. Uh, and how do you use those emotions and feelings to actually propel you for, forward? In other words, how to turn them into a positive. And then the final part of the book is how do you actually grow your business? Like what are the steps you need to take to grow it? So it's, it's really, a, in some respects, it's a three-part book. Uh, and, and you're not ready for the third part until you recognize in part one and two that it's about taking initiative. Uh, and at the, the end of the book, it's about uh, what, I call, uh, what I call following Uncle Harry's River. And Uncle's, Uncle Harry's River is based on my, uh, my Uncle Harry, who was a... Uh, pediatrician in Montreal. And when he was on his deathbed, I was only about, he was my great uncle. I was only about 19 years old and I went to see him. At that point in time, I thought I might want to be a doctor. And he said, he gave me the following advice. He said, Norm, he said, I, I always wanted to be a, a pediatrician, uh, sorry, a, a, an obstetrician, but my first opportunity came in pediatrics and I took it and the rest was history. He, in fact, he he had won an order of the British Empire for inoculating troops going off to war in the World War II theater. He was a, a thinker who was ahead of his time. But, um, but he said, think of your career path as a river. He said, and the river has a current and you're going to put your boat in that river and you've got two choices. You can uh, set your goal at something on the other shore uh, and fight very hard against the current to get there. And it will cost you a lot of emotional energy and you may never get there because the current's just pulling you too hard in the wrong direction. So the, all the other alternative is to follow the current of the river 
And what you'll see along the way is that there are all kinds of branches hanging out over that river that you can grab onto as you go by. And that is another career alternative. He said, it's the one I followed. And it turned into, it gave me a very rich and productive life. He said, but it's your choice. Well, when I look back, particularly as I was writing the memoirs, I, I, I scratched my head and I said, you know what? I followed Uncle Harry's river. Uh, and, and part of it was, and this is you know, the, the, the core message in the book, is that ultimately it's all about yes. It's all about saying, yes, I'm going to try this. Yes, I'm going to take this opportunity. Yes, I might fail. But even if I do fail, I'm going to learn something critical about myself in the process. And that will help me grow. And the next time I try it, I won't fail. I'm going to succeed. And when I look back on it, that was the story of my career and brought me to places that certainly when I was 19 years old, I could never have imagined. When I left law school, I could never, I certainly could never have imagined I'd be one of Canada's leading film finance lawyers. I could never imagine I'd be working with multinational studios, uh, that I would be running uh, a major law firm in Canada. Uh, or that, uh, or that ultimately I'd be, uh, you know, having lunches with former prime ministers of Canada and working with them on important firm files. So it was all completely unimaginable to me when I started. And step by step, yes by yes, I got there. And that's, you know, you asked me what's the core message of the book. It took me a long time to get there, but that's what it is. Well, it's interesting because you must have had your three best friends with you. Fear, failure, and risk. <laughs> Absolutely. At, at every turn. And, and certainly I can tell you when you're, when you're a managing partner running a, running a business, uh, and if you're successful, this is one of the things I learned through hard experience, but roughly one out of every four decisions you're, you're, you're going to make are going to be wrong. Think about it. It's one in four uh and and from based on what i've read and even based on experience uh if you're doing better than one in four it's probably because you're not making enough decisions and it isn't about and this is organizational but uh, i i suggest it applies to our careers as well and to our lives that it isn't about making that mistake uh or or making that that bad decision. It's about how you deal with it and how fast you deal with it and whether you deal with it. And if you can, and if you can learn from that mistake, if you want to call it a mistake or that, that poor decision, then you're always going to be way ahead of the game. Well, you know, it's interesting because part of what we do at the Brain Performance Center, we do some performance coaching. We have an executive function program. And what I find a lot of times the problem is, is that people are not defining the problem correctly. So it's it's no wonder that the answers, the solutions they come up with don't work because it's all in that problem definition. Talk to me about that. Uh, I may need you to repeat just the end of that. Well, what I was saying is that you know sometimes people that think they may have executive functioning problems because they come up with all these great solutions to these problems and they don't work. 
and the sol- the solutions are great, but the problem is is that the problem hasn't been defined properly in the beginning. Right. And the, the, to, to my mind, the question really is whether you're going to learn from it. So in other words, you, 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 you know, it, it, and I, I certainly learned this being a leader that it's, it's not just important to be a leader, but you have to make sure that everybody's following you and that they're able to follow you and able to understand you. And sometimes when you get out too far ahead of things and you haven't set the groundwork properly, you need you need to go back to square one and reestablish uh, where you're all headed together. So a, a lot of these things are called the missions, and you need to you know you, you need to verify that people understand you know what what's my role in this, how do I contribute, um, and and I think very often the greatest uh, cause for failure of new initiatives, and I, I learned from this sometimes through through the wins and through the losses, uh, was that we hadn't done enough homework on making sure people understood what their roles were. That's a good point, because roles and expectations um, are the, the basics. You know, if, if I don't, if I'm unsure what my role is, I think it's another thing, then I set my expectations way in left field. And maybe you set your expectations of me way in right field. Um, yeah, and it's also a matter of, uh, it's funny, what my wife calls actions and words. And this, uh, this all still gets back to values. And there's who we say we are. And then there's what we do every day. And if our actions, our daily actions, aren't consistent with who we say we are, so if you're asking to do somebody to do something uh and they're thinking but if if i do that that's you know you're you're, you know you say you want to put people first but if i do this if you're asking me to fire five people uh you know i'm not putting people first i'm putting profits first so what what that does is it breeds a certain cynicism in your organization and and I'm not saying a particular value is right or wrong. I mean, your 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 corporate value could be let's all make the most amount of money pro- uh, possible, and everybody comes to work every day knowing that's the mission. And then when you say, okay, I want you to fire five people, the person who gets that message says, I get it. My mission is to make sure I make the most amount of money, and the only way I can do this is if I can toe the party line. So if our but if if the if the actions are consistent, if I'm asking you to do something and your brain is telling you, yeah, that's completely consistent with everything Norm's ever told me about this place, then you will follow me. But if I suddenly ask you to do something that's inconsistent with what I say uh, we're all about, you're either going to find a way to uh, passively ignore me uh, or whatever light is inside you that's burning for this organization is slowly going to go out. And you, you look at organizations, and particularly organizations that aren't succeeding or that are simply mediocre, and your listeners out there know, you know, know, know whether they're in one or, are, or, or one or the other. And it's largely because their actions aren't consistent. 
So what I have found that, of course, the client base I work with, I work with a lot of anxiety, depression, ADHD, but they're basically with the anxiety and the depression, they stay on an emotional roller coaster. Even they may not necessarily be depressed at the moment, but, you know, they go up and down. I'm happy. I'm sad. And the same with, with anxiety that, you know, I'm not worried about it. I'm scared to death of it. So how do you, how do you ride that emotional roller coaster in, in creating a business? I think people need to have a, a safe outlet to discuss their feelings. And so many uh, businesses don't provide for it. And you, and you can see things are changing, at least in theory. And, and so many more businesses now are focused uh, on diversity, are focused on uh, dealing with uh, uh, workplace depression. Uh, but, and, and there's a big but here, you know, setting up programs to deal with it uh, is only half the battle. The, the other half is, again, I, I think setting up your actions, and it starts at the top and then filters all the way down. But you know, if you want to be able to deal with workplace anxiety, I think you need to show your people that you care about them and have your people care about one another in a way that a lot of businesses are not set up to do. So, if, And if you're not set up to do it, you can talk about it all you want. It's not going to succeed. Well, and I think empathy is something that that some people don't have any of, but it's something that certainly does create, kind of opens up the barriers. Because if I can understand how you feel and you understand how I feel, then we're both willing to work together. That's it. And and, and that that so much ties up almost everything we've, we've spoken about up until now. Uh, from storytelling and on out. And uh, from a storytelling perspective uh, and from a client perspective and from a relationship perspective, uh, if I have to be the hero of the story, uh, then your job can only be the the obsequious follower. Whereas if I make you the hero of the story, and I am helping you achieve your goal, then we've completely connected. And, and you will go to the end of the world. I, I still remember one, one situation I had, I had hired someone who was a, a fifth year lawyer from another firm. And, uh, and he, he likes to tell the story how this stranger dropped into his office in his second week. It was about six o'clock and just plunked himself in the chair office, opposite him and just started having a chat about nothing in particular other than families and wanting to get to know you. And, and I, I see you, 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 I don't recognize you, so you, you must have just started, so tell me about yourself. And he said they spent about half an hour together. And uh, his assistant came in the next morning and said, do you know who that, that person was? He said, yeah, it's Norm from the 28th floor. She said, that's not Norm from the 28th floor. That's the managing partner of this entire organization. And he said, you know, I I worked five years at this other firm. I never met the managing partner. And and Norm didn't even, you know, didn't even tell me who he was. So it wasn't a question of uh, doing it for a particular reason. He said, 
but he said, from that moment on, you owned me. He said, and if you had asked me to jump out the window because the firm would benefit from it, I would have done it. Wow, that that says it all. So let's, you know, if you were going to say, it's interesting to me because you wrote two books that were very, you know, good advice, but you also wrote a couple of fiction books. So is that a different part of your brain that you're tapping into? It's it's funny in, in in you might think it's a different part. Part of it requires skills that I developed uh, as a tax attorney, uh, working on uh, because I find particular particularly writing mysteries and figuring out plots is very much about going down roads uh, untraveled and running into brick walls and then trying to keep running at those walls until you figure out a way around them, through them, under them, <laughs> or over them. And, and that's a skill that I learned. It's because writing a mystery is largely about just never giving up. Uh, but it's, it's uh, from a creative perspective, the one thing I found and has led to my own growth uh, in these novels is it's a real opportunity uh, to study people. And to study, uh, to study how people react to things, to, to watch how uh, personalities react to stressful situations, and and to deal with you know the greater issues in life, like uh, like love and dealing with tragedy. And um, you know, one of one of my heroes has to overcome a, a drug addiction to decide whether he's prepared to fight for his his father's business. It's about you know, what's it like to be the child of a very iconic and difficult father and a mother who never loved you? So those the, the chance to explore those kind of issues within the context of a of a page turner where you as the reader, you just want to get through that book. And I'm and I'm able to plant things along the way to really hopefully get you to think about your own life. I mean, that that to me is is the huge win out of all of this. So I think you have a, another fiction book coming out pretty soon, don't you? Well, I've, I'm just, I've uh, pre-released Ophelia, uh, although I may be changing the, the title to Drowning in Guilt. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Which is, which is a modern day Hamlet. It's, it's actually out on Amazon, but I'm uh, about to start advertising it. And that one is really, you know, the, the son of an iconic billionaire uh, has to overcome his drug addiction and the woman that he is madly in love with, what he doesn't realize uh, has been put into his life uh, to protect him. And she has her own obsessions that tie to a family vow uh, taken before she was born. So two families connected by an event 60 years before the action starts. Uh, in fact, it, it deals with the, the Danish, the Danish uh, Dunkirk, in, in World War II, where Lutheran fishermen uh, transported Jews who were complete strangers to Sweden and risked their own lives. But I put wow. myself in one of those boats on a stormy night and said, you know, what if, and what if we followed those two families for 60 years and what happened to them? So that will be coming out soon, or it has been released? That, you, can, you, can, you can find that one on Amazon, just like Take Charge. It's called Ophelia. <laughs> Great. You know, I think it's interesting because uh, in a couple of your books, you look at the history 
you you look at the history and then you build on that. And that I always enjoy because I feel more grounded. I know, okay, I know where this is going. Although I don't always know, but I think I do. <laughs> and, and my job as the author is is to keep you guessing the entire time. And the one thing I did learn about reading, uh, about writing fiction from some of my favorite authors when I began to understand how to dissect what they were doing is that, you know, writing mystery is like giving a giving a great speech or telling a great story and you a, a book is really a dialogue with the reader's mind and i find my favorite authors uh i'll read a sentence and and somewhere in my mind i'm saying why did she write this or what's the character thinking or what is it i don't yet understand and and when is the author going to let me in on uh, on the next little mystery and those are the, the, the tricks of writing that uh, that I had to, so many of them that I had to learn that I'm still learning. Well, you're still learning and you're still, I'm sure, thinking about that next book. Any <laughs> ideas on what that'll be? Oh, I'm writing, uh, I'm in the middle of three right now. So one, uh, so, so what, whereas Ophelia is a modern day Hamlet and Odell's Fall, which was my first book, uh, was a modern day um, Othello. I'm now uh, writing a modern-day Macbeth around the U.S. presidency, uh, although she is a woman. Uh, so, so America is in for a U.S. Uh, a female U.S. president. <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. Well, you know, it's been really interesting listening to you because you started off as a a law student, becoming a lawyer, developing a huge law firm and you expanded your knowledge and your expertise and moved on. And basically it sounds like you have a whole new world ahead of you now. Uh, absolutely. It, you know, I, I hope I will never stop learning and never stop. Uh, frankly, I hope I will never stop failing because I can't tell you how many days I sit there staring at my computer screen, having no idea of what comes next. Well, it sounds like you're doing a very good job of hanging in there. And, and, you know, what do you think about when you when you look at that blank screen? I just have to ask before we go, what are you thinking about? That's a great question. It's it's sort of sometimes it's a what comes next. And sometimes it's a you know what, I'm just going to start typing words. And and sometimes what comes out of me for the first 10 minutes is horrible. And then I look down at the screen and the moments I live for are those moments where a character reveals something to me that I didn't know. And I, I look at the screen and I said, oh, my God, I had no idea. So, Norm, if people want to find out more about you, I know you do some speaking, th different things. How will they find you? How do they connect with you? Uh, simplest way is uh, going to my website. And the toughest part of going to my website is spelling my name right. So it's Norman Bacall, B-A-C-A-L.com. Simple as that, NormanBacall.com. You can see my books. You could see uh, my speaking engagements. You can learn about my life, my vulnerabilities, <laughs> as well as my successes. Uh, and uh, you can email me through there, or you can look for my books on Amazon. Well, that's good to know. So do you respond to the emails that you get? I respond to every email I get, and 
and frankly, every young pe person who gets in touch with me I and wants to Zoom, I will Zoom with. So I will talk to anybody, anytime, about anything. Can't end on a better note than that. Norm, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. On behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.